Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Archie Mann, reporter and journalist, uh, host of Canada Land Commons, Vancouver native. Yeah, that's me. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Today we're going to talk about Decision 2019. Are you indifferent, dispassionate, or disinterested? The choice is yours, Canada. Why not all three? We're also going to talk about how the Vancouver Sun is very, very sorry about publishing that inflammatory anti-immigrant screed. Next time they publish an anti-immigrant screed, they'll tone it down a little. (laughs) Good to have you here. Thanks again. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Corey Lewis, Ariane Fairley, Naomi Brearley, Sergio Batista, Allison Wyatt, Craig Finnegan, Elizabeth Barclay, and Adam. Hey, my name's Adam, and I'm living and working in Ottawa. I support Canada Land because the threat of the violent far-right extremism is ignored by Canadian media. There is a struggle for the future of this country and what it looks like, and I want to know where our leaders stand. It's been scrubbed from their websites, but can still be found on newsstands. The Vancouver Sun and the province are facing backlash after publishing an editorial article with anti-diversity and anti-inclusion rhetoric. Arshi, what the fuck? Yeah, it's not great. The headline, the original headline before this was uh, disappeared, unpublished, removed, retracted, apologized for. Ethnic diversity harms a country's social trust, economic well-being, argues professor. So this was a shit show and it was removed from the Sun's website and then eventually from the province's website and then an then apology ran and the apology says, you know, like this doesn't reflect our views and there was like an error in our process. The main thing I want to highlight here is that they fucked up the retraction. They fucked up the correction. They fucked up the apology because They opened the door for people to say, and people have been saying, oh, the radical lefties were whining because the Sun published something that they disagreed with, and we can't have disagreement in this country. So this opinion from this professor is being removed so that we in the public are protected from this dangerous idea. And I just want to do the job right now of actually explaining why this should never have been published. It's not because it was a controversial opinion or because I disagree with the opinion. It's because it was wrong. It was total and utter bullshit. Yeah. Like, you know, if we give it the most generous kind of gloss, you can make this kind of argument in a slightly less racist way. I don't know if you can in an entirely less racist way, but you certainly can't when in what, paragraph three or four, you're quoting the Gatehouse Institute, which is a pretty much made-up Islamophobic bullshit 
institute that just, you know, straight up makes up bad stats about Muslims so that they can be proliferated around the media. And if an editor had even spent half a second Wikipediaing this one institute, they would have seen that this is all kind of bogus and nonsense. Yeah, I mean, let us let us count the ways. Um, I, I I did that cursory googling and found that the Gatehouse, uh, the Gatestone, ins- ins- Gatestone, sorry. It'll sound like our opinion to say, oh, it's 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 a hate tank, it's anti-Muslim. Again, it's not a matter of opinion. They're wrong. Go to Snopes. They come up three times each time. Was this thing the Gatestone Institute reported correct? No, it was false. So they they proliferate things like Sweden is the rape capital of the world based on Muslim immigration to Sweden. It's wrong. They get things wrong. The media bias fact check gives it a mixed rating for factual reporting. So to uncritically cite the Gatestone Institute without mentioning any of that doesn't pass the smell test. But, we, but before we even get there, the original headline, Ethnic Diversity Harms a Country's Social Trust, Economic Well-Being, argues Professor... Mark Hecht is not a professor, <laughs> right? Like he's not a professor; he's an instructor, and and his and his area of expertise academically is not anything to do with this stuff. And I think that it's not just that that's an error. You have to ask yourself the question of like, why did you err in that direction? You know, to 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 post media to the Vancouver Sun. Why did you inflate his credentials? Uh, it, obviously, like you're erring in a certain direction. You're erring in the direction of uh, legitimizing him as an expert presenting him as an expert on these things. That, that is factually incorrect. And finally- well, but he uses statistics. He has examples from Denmark. I mean, these it. are the kinds of things academics do. Well, and here's the next uh, source that he cited, this paper from Harvard economists, Alberto Alessina and co-authors, a paper titled Fractionalization. And this was presented in the original piece as evidence that this was a study that argued that greater diversity leads to stunted economic growth. That also is, is incorrect. Robert Jago pointed this out. The study found just the opposite. If you read the goddamn study, it reads, religious diversity is correlated with economic success. <laughs> so that is why the, a newspaper shouldn't publish this. Yeah. It's wrong. But there's more to this, and you were helpful in me understanding some Vancouver Sun context. Probably a lot of our listeners right now are going to be, the ones who aren't from Vancouver, are going to be looking at this entirely through the kind of post-media lens, right? It's like, oh, look, Everything that Canada Land was saying is coming true, that uh, the reporting that Sean Craig did that shows that they're going to take a hard right turn in their opinions and like this is coming down from the top. And I really don't think that's what's happening here. The truth is the Vancouver Sun's editorial page has been way worse on these issues than even the rest of Post Media for a long time. They like, you know, I mean, maybe the Toronto Sun is probably the, the most uh, the best comparison yeah. that I can think of. And and for the non-Vancouver listeners, the Vancouver Sun is the broadsheet, right? Like, it's supposed to be the kind of, uh, uh, you know, serious, high-minded paper. The classier paper. The classier. The smarter paper. Exactly. And the more trustworthy paper. Yeah, but almost everything that comes through that editorial page that has to do with issues around race, immigration, or diversity – It's skeptical towards all of those. They almost never take claims of, like, racism seriously, you know, unless it's something along the lines of, you know, a racist incident that happens in the street, but certainly not anything structural. And the reason I think a lot of people jumped on this is because there has been a longstanding discussion for the last few years in Vancouver about one of the columnists at the Vancouver Sun, Douglas Todd. And the reason for that is because he is the diversity columnist. But if you actually read his columns, he sure doesn't seem to like diversity. He sure doesn't actually seem to be interested in the concerns of non-white or indigenous Canadians. 
at all. So I, I got dragged for this because I cited uh, Douglas Todd as an anti-immigrant columnist. Let me guess who dragged you. Terry Glavin. Terry Glavin. Uh, <laughs> Ian Young. With a very uh, a personal attack. And, yeah. and, and Ian Young with, with a bit more of a measured thing saying, like, look, yeah. Douglas Todd has the misfortune of being a middle-aged white guy who's the diversity columnist, okay? Can't blame the guy for having that job. I think he kind of can uh, to some degree. I don't agree. As a uh, as a former news reporter for for Extra, it, uh, which is Canada's only LGBT news outlet, and <laughs> being a straight man, right. I, I by virtue of my own biography have to disagree. I, I, I feel like in this in this job climate, it's it's hard to fault a journalist for like taking a job. But like if you're like a middle aged white guy and you're like you know we, like in a city like Vancouver where there's no shortage of people of various ethnicities who could write about diversity, be like, do you want the job? Like anyhow, it takes two to tango. He he took the job, but that's not why he's anti immigrant. He's not anti-immigrant because he's a middle-aged uh, no. white guy. I feel like I I stand by my statement that his columns are anti-immigrant, though they're yes. a bit they're it's more difficult than with his hecht piece. Look, look, they're anti-immigrant in a specific kind of way, right? Break it down it's, for me. It's this kind of search for the perfect immigrant, right? So, so my first interaction that I had with Doug Todd on Twitter uh, was when he he wrote this piece about Toronto Sun columnist uh, Tariq Fatah, who is terrible. <laughs> Tariq Fatah has presented himself as the as a like moderate Muslim, right? He's written a, a book called, you know, The Jew is Not My Enemy, for instance. Mm-hmm. It has kind of tried to make himself the face of like the opposite of extremism. But the problem is he's kind of just an Islamophobe, actually. And uh, I Doug- wouldn't I wouldn't have agreed with you when I first heard about Tariq Fatah, but over the years, I mean, and because I'm connected to him on Facebook and I see the kind of things that he talks about and shares and I mean, he's still on the record claiming that the Quebec mosque shooting, it was like a false flag operation. And, and, and this was exactly what, what I did is I sent Doug Todd after he wrote this kind of laudatory column praising him as the exemplary moderate Muslim. I sent him a DM like, look, I, I don't know if you know this, but like just a few months ago, he was claiming that the Quebec City mosque attack was actually like a false flag attack by Muslims. And so... You know, this this isn't the guy you want to be highlighting. And Doug Todd's like, oh, I didn't I didn't know that. Like, thank you for for telling me. I mean, do you have any other ideas of moderate Muslims out there that I could talk to? That's a weird question for one. Yeah. Like you're kind of assuming that there's literally nobody else. So I gave him a suggestion of Kamal Al-Salehli, who's an author in Toronto, who wrote a book called Brown about, you know, brownness. And Doug Todd's response to me was like, oh, but I'm not sure if he practices. Like, one, are we sure Tariq Fatah practices? Right. (laughs) But that's beyond the point. That kind of, like, picking and choosing of very specific individuals as, like, example, the positive example against the broad, you know, bad group is a constant throughout his column. So he does this as well with South Asians, Doug Todd, right? So he'll always cite... For almost every one of his columns, he goes to, like, two people when he's talking about Punjabi or Sikh or South Asian politics, and it's Ujjal Dasanj and it's Shinder Purwal. And it's the same two people over and over and over. Yeah, if that was your job, you think you'd have a bigger Rolodex. I mean, the whole thing of the, like, um, the ideal immigrant thing came up uh, in, in sort of the same news cycle with Bianca Andreescu of, of like, you know, mm-hmm. this is what we want. This is how it's supposed to be. And, you know, I don't know. It overlooks, as it was pointed out in the star, all kinds of issues of, like, you know— 
being a, a white immigrant versus a person of color. If you're going to kind of like idealize the like they come here with nothing, huddled masses and build themselves up. Well, some people come here with privilege. Like, uh, I don't know. Like, or like money or, with, you know, yeah. like, yeah. It, it, I'm not, it, I don't know anything about Bianca and Driscoll, just for the record. I've well, not you know, the, uh, the Wimbledon, so. it, it was just interesting how it kind of got sandwiched into this in, in, into this dialogue, you know, because it, it sort of came up at, like like some people even in a defensive way of like, oh, the Vancouver Sun is talking shit about immigrants. Well, look at this immigrant. He's a wonderful immigrant. What I found very interesting was that the response that the Vancouver Sun after this column after their apology, they published, like, actually, diversity and immigration are good. And, like, that kind of misses the point, again. Yeah. What I need out of the Vancouver Sun is I just need a columnist or, like, somebody who takes the concerns of non-white people seriously, who talks about structural racism, who talks about issues that are affecting non-white communities, and not just focus on the problems immigration causes. So about a—this is from maybe two years ago— I went through a bunch of Douglas Todd columns, every single one for a year. Yeah. And I just, I tried to be as generous as possible, and I put them into three broad categories. Are they kind of skeptical of non-white people, as in trying to go after claims of racism or saying that certain kinds of diversity are actually bad or talking about that the problems that immigration causes, right? Or are they just kind of neutral? Are they about, you know, something else entirely? Or are they supportive or sympathetic? And by that I meant, are they discussing problems that are affecting non-white folks, you know, that they would want to see in the paper? And I just tallied it up in a very broad way. And again, I tried to be generous. And of the number of columns, 65 were skeptical, about 25 were neutral, and 14 were sympathetic or speaking to concerns of non-white folks. That's a massive disparity. So whatever you want to think about Douglas Todd's um, methods or whatever you want to think about him as a guy, his work and the the way he uses his space within the Vancouver Sun is to undermine non-white communities. I don't know. Vancouver need, like Vancouver is much, much worse, I would say, than even a city like Toronto when it comes to these debates. I grew up in the Punjabi Sikh community in Vancouver, like outside of Vancouver in the suburbs. And what's weird is I knew the names of certain reporters when I was six and seven, which is wild because they were the reporters that covered the Punjabi Sikh community. Many of them did a very good job, but they were covering issues like terrorism and like gangs. And those are the only forms of representation that you would see of your community within the media. So I knew who Kim Boland and Terry Molesky were, you know, really? before I'd. I'd uh, That's really uh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the lesson is like this stuff matters. It matters because I've spent some time with Douglas Todd's work as well. And it builds a respectable intellectual underpinning for more radical views and it legitimizes the idea because it looks at things through a lens of like are these immigrants helping or hurting us yes you know and so you read these things uh, and, and it, it it draws on like oh i've got research about this you know we've got things like trust studies you know is it hurting uh, the trust that we have for one another and it's like it, it makes it sound like it's like shocking, like, oh, we, we say diversity is so great, but the trust studies actually show that people trust each other less when you've got lots of different enclaves. Tawasin doesn't get counted as an ethnic enclave. Right. White Rock doesn't get counted as an ethnic enclave, but Surrey sure as hell does. Because when white people cluster together, you know, that's not an enclave. That's just normal. And he's he's looking at things like you, you're taking a country. I, I, I get very upset about this because we're, we're, we're in a country where we're actually like we're inventing a problem out of all this stuff. Like we're getting along pretty fucking well. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it economically, it's actually a really 
successful story, if you want to look at like the statistics that matter, but if you kind of create this new statistic, the trust index, which has got its own problems and its methodology, and then you find like, yeah, people come from another part of the world. It's going to take a generation or two for integration to take place and for language. And, and like, oh, do you trust your neighbor? Like, I, I don't know. How do you answer and, and, that and question? And it's a framing thing. It's the same way why I think talking about race relations is total bullshit, right? Because it elides any responsibility. Like, the, you know, the, race the, relations yeah. can deteriorate at a time when racism from the white majority is going up and like you can't exactly blame immigrants or or black people or indigenous folks it's so subtle in the douglas todd stuff like there was this one piece i read about how the term visible minority is meaningless that's what he said it's meaningless because whites are now the visible minority that is actually incorrect as well but whites are not a visible minority whites still are the plurality in every canadian city so just because you lose the majority you're still the biggest goddamn group I hate this framing, and this but, always comes up. But you, oh, really, let's sorry. really think about that. Like, why is so? And it's like this thing of like, hey, I'm not saying it's bad or good. I'm just saying that whites are becoming a minority. Well, we know where people go with that. Like, oh my God, we're becoming a minority. We got to do something about that. That's terrible. Like, what? Why is it terrible? If it in fact is happening, and I'll, I'll return here, Arshi, to your original point that like this is a Vancouver Sun problem, not a post media problem. Okay. Now I agree with you. There was no, and I I, I know this. But, you know, Jonathan Goldsby kind of reported out how this happened, and it was actually Douglas Todd's work that attracted this hecked character. Yeah, exactly. So Mark, Mark Hecht agrees with the hard yeah, characterizations. Like, oh, here's of a paper, that, and the National Post actually rejected that <laughs> yeah. column. Okay, and so all the posties uh, are saying, you know, like, oh, this is a Vancouver something. Don't look at me. But it's because there, there were two different takes as this thing was blowing up as a terrible shit show for Post Media. People from Post Media, in management, editors, columnists, were either saying, "Not me, not my fault. It's the Vancouver Sun problem." But then they were also saying at the same time, "I don't see what the big deal is." So uh, it's like, well, which one is it? Either this is a, a horrible bag of shit that, like, I don't want to be holding this. This is my, this isn't my fault. This is their fault. Or it's no big deal. And I think there was a certain honesty to Laurie Goldstein's thing, where he was saying, like, I, I read that column it was a bit more inflammatory than I would have said. But you know, uh, this is all just. Well, he, he said he would have changed a few of the stats, some of the framing, some of the headline. But like otherwise, oh yeah, he makes some strong points. It's like this is what runs in the Toronto Sun and other papers all of the time. So this is why I this think guy this guy was just being more honest. This about is it. a post media problem. This is not. I mean, no. Uh, Andrew McLeod didn't pick up the phone and say, get me, a, let, let's lie and call him a professor and let's, no, it didn't come from on high. In fact, the mistake was, it was too obviously racist. <laughs> that, that was the mistake. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if it's a post-media problem or like, to me, that is a broader Canadian journalism problem. I don't know if we can fully locate that. No, you, I, I, I will argue that you can and I'll tell yeah, you why. Please. And, and, and I've, I've spoken to people at high levels there and, and essentially they want to have it their way, which is which is sort of the original conceit of the National Post, which is like we are um, stylish conservatives, we're hip conservatives, we're young conservatives, yeah. we're we're um, libertarians, we're economically conservative, but we're socially pretty neutral. Like we're we're about freedom and liberty. And the Globe and Mail is this fusty old boomer liberal thing, and 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 we actually are kind of like um, yeah, that that's satiric, a, yeah. you know. So they had this vision of conservatism. And it just didn't go that way, right? Like, that's nice for them. And that was, like, a, a fine as a ideological and personal and aesthetic yeah, that, movement. that's kind of what the National Post felt like five, six, right. seven years but ago. But conservatism yeah. globally has become a populist shit show, yeah. right? Fueled by anti-immigration. So now the post media is circling the toilet. And, they, and they're basically, under this new leadership, what, what Sean Craig documented for us is you've got management saying, hey— what the hell are we doing here? If there's going to be any successful saving of this business, it's going to be we, we can't separate ourselves from the way that, that like the people want conservatism. 
Like, like we actually have to be those people's news outlet. We need a brand that connects with where conservatism is actually going. The small C conservatives, not the party people, but like the yep. Joe, Joe Lunchbox. Now, they're still trying to like, you know, kind of skew that like, oh, it's a Wall Street Journal thing. It's not a Fox News thing. It's going to be a Fox News. Like, you you can't try to capture the magic and the, well, and the even energy. The Wall Street Journal's gone that way in the age of Trump, right? Like they've we, been captured. That's that it. You, yeah. I mean, you spend any time in the comment section and you know what people in Canada whose leanings right. They want to talk about these immigration issues and they are frequently very racist. So I think that they're I, I don't think that Andrew McLeod is a racist. I don't think that. I don't think Doug Todd's racist. I don't, I don't think, think Doug Todd's racist. Well, but, but actually, I, I don't know. I don't actually I give his, a shit I, I think what's in work, anyone's heart. His I work helps racism. I don't care about their motivations, yes, exactly, right? exactly. Like, Who so gives a shit? In, in practical application, there is no way that they are going to be able to 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 build their populist conservative media network without tapping. It's the same thing with Andrew Scheer. Like, I don't know if Andrew Scheer is racist. I, I'll, I'll assume that he isn't because I assume nice things of people before I know otherwise. But there's no way he's going to win without appealing to racists. You know, post media is going to have to under their tent they need that market you know and and so so the the, the shift to the right that we documented is is it's like it's almost like they're either going to be racist or they're going to fail you know or they might do both <laughs> they might be racist and fail well that's very heartening this show is sponsored by better help therapy online that has served over three million people around the world and better help is available here in canada a lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Archie, it's time to duly note some things that might otherwise go overlooked. I'm going to go first if that's okay with you. Works for me. I'd like to duly note that Malcolm Gladwell is a charlatan. <laughs> oh, man. There is a review of Malcolm Gladwell's new book in The Atlantic, and... Andrew Ferguson does this wonderful thing in his review. He takes like one of these wonderful little nuggets that Malcolm Gladwell throws out. These little, these little thinky treats, mm -hmm. you know? Gladwell writes in this section on Sylvia Plath, poets die young. 
And of every occupational category, poets have far and away the highest suicide rates, as much as five times higher than the general population. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That sounds like a pretty interesting fact to me. Andrew Ferguson just checked the footnote. Where are you getting that? Like, how do you actually count that poets, in contrast to other professions, die, like c commit suicide five times higher the rate? Like, like is there- So how many professional poets are there? Like eight? Yeah. So he went and, and, and Ferguson looked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. There is no category for poets. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's a category for writers and authors, which like includes like advertising copywriters, right? Technical so, writers. Yeah. That doesn't seem to be where Gladwell would be drawing that from. So he actually looks up the source and Gladwell footnotes a paper titled Suicide and Creativity by a college professor named Mark Runco from 1998 in a journal called Death Studies. And Death Studies? Death Studies. Which That's is a, a great journal. I want to go check that out. Yeah. Runco himself gets this poet's suicide rate thing from another book called Touched with Fire by Kay Redfield Jameson, clinical psychologist. Here's how she got it. She basically just said, okay, I'm going to list everybody I consider to be a major British or Irish poet from the year <laughs> 1705 to 1805. She came up with 36 names. Uh -huh. I, these are major poets. Two of those people committed suicide. And one of them like wasn't a professional poet. They were a doctor who wrote poetry. Yeah. And one was like, you know, um, 17 years old. So, okay, they're professional poets, sure. And then based on 1705 to 1805, those two suicides out of 36 poets, that is five times the rate of everybody else at the time. Voila, a statistic is born. Poets kill themselves at five times the rate as, as everybody else. That's where Gladwell got it from. It's complete horseshit. And it's the kind of thing that you know you're going to be hearing at dinner parties for like it's 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 a little thinky treat. Have have you listened to revisionist history? Yes. What do and you think? I'm going to tell you something. I know that Gladwell is full of shit, and I enjoy him. I don't <laughs> care. I don't care yeah. that he lies yeah. to me because like it's the it's so inconsequential. Like oh, poets kill themselves at five. Like hmm, it does, nothing hinges on that. Yeah. No, you know? I, I I love Malcolm Gladwell. I've said I've admitted to this before <laughs> in a previous ad on Commons. Like I know he is kind of a charlatan, and like his books are kind of terrible. Like I I don't I'm sure that methodology probably <laughs> runs in in his New Yorker articles and in revisionist history as well. But my God, is he good at fucking crafting that narrative? He's so good at like making you look at a thing differently, and maybe that different viewpoint is total and utter crap. But I sure enjoy it. I enjoy the whole experience of Malcolm Gladwell. I enjoy Malcolm Gladwell's charlatanism, charlatanry, chicanery, and then I enjoy the takedowns. Like the, this Atlantic piece, you got to read it. Like it's 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 delicious the way he disassembles and dissects Malcolm Gladwell. So duly noted. <laughs> Archie, what do you have for us? So I got a very depressing one. So it's been about four years and a month since Miles Gray was killed by the Vancouver police uh, in the middle of the daytime on a sunny August day for absolutely no reason that anybody can discern at this point. So I want to put out a little bit of a, a disclaimer. He was uh, a cousin of a friend of mine, and that's how I first heard about this case. But I think if Cana more Canadians knew about it, they'd really be shocked and appalled. I don't know about it. Tell me about it. So Miles, uh, he's a guy from uh, Seashelt, BC, uh, not too far from Vancouver, but he was working in Vancouver on like a hot August day. And as far as we can tell, I mean, one, he was unarmed. Uh, he was, I believe, working on a construction site that day and kind of during on a lunch break or something like that, he comes across uh, a woman watering her, her lawn. This is during one of those like, you can't water because we're running out of water, it's too hot kind of things. It seems like they probably got in some kind of argument. 
And, you know, he's saying, like, please stop watering your lawn or whatever. Maybe even got heated. We actually, at this point, don't know. But what we do know is a short while later, he was dead at the hands of, I think it was 8 to 10 VPD officers. Wow. Beaten to death. What's really shocking about this case is not necessarily that it happened. People do get killed by the police a lot in Canada, even unarmed people. But the uh, IIO, which is BC's sort of newly created police accountability agency, still has not completed their investigation into this. They have not released the report. They haven't done anything. They've been stymied at every turn by the Vancouver Police Department. And it is goddamn shameful. (laughs) How long ago did this happen again? Four years and a month ago. Four years and a month ago. Yeah. Uh, There has been absolutely no justice for him and his family. Like, it can't, I can't imagine the kind of, like, trauma that Unarmed guy gets into a dispute over garden watering with a neighbor and is beaten to death by eight to ten cops. Yeah, yeah. You think that people are like, what are the answers? What's your story anyhow? Like, uh, whether we believe it or not, like, what's your version of this? And four years later, we don't have their version of this? We don't have their version of it. What we do know is that we still don't have a report. We still don't have justice. And it's, it's embarrassing, especially for the city of Vancouver. If if we're being honest, Vancouver is considerably behind most a lot of other cities, including Toronto, when it comes to serious discussions around police accountability and police brutality. Um, and this is just another indication of it. Duly noted. One last one. I would like to duly note that you're about to drop the new season of Commons. Sure am. Can we tell people what it's about? I don't think we've announced this yet. No, no, we haven't. This is uh, an exclusive for Shortcuts listeners. We're calling it Dynasties. So the first season was about corruption and, you know, Canada, kind of a corrupt place. Second season's about Canada, a little bit of a petro state. This one is just about all of those rich and powerful families that kind of run everything around here. Whether we're talking about corporate, rich-ass business folks, whether we're talking about political dynasties, you know. uh, You may be aware that the current prime minister's father also used to be prime minister. Uh, The current Exclusive. (laughs) You heard it here first. Yeah. uh, No, this this is fantastic, Archie. Like, way back in, I don't know, year two of Canada Land, did this episode on the Irving family, thought, like, you know, who's going to give a shit about this episode of New Brunswick? Remains one of the most popular episodes ever because we have these incredible stories we have these oligarchs we have these families that like have incredible influence and are fascinating and unlike the states where there's just copious coverage of these people we kind of ignore them and so there's just there's a wealth of stuff that i know you've been digging into and commons you've been just sort of like refining your chops as a storytelling podcast so like yeah let's get the fuck into it let's talk about each of these dynasties let's talk about each of these families i think it's a fantastic focus I can't wait to hear what you got. And we we just got our new music in, and I will say it's lit. Duly noted. <laughs> you know, elections are all about choices, and the liberals are determined to have this election framed as a choice about who you want to run this country for the next four years. Well, look at the national ballot, and I guess if you're uh, part of Team Red, you have to be reasonably happy. The big issue at the beginning of the campaign for the NDP is that they are cast with the Green Party in the race for the third place. That's not good. Breaking with tradition, the Prime Minister, who was in Halifax earlier today, is calling this election in the middle of the week and not on a Sunday. (laughs) So there you have it, Archie, and it continues in print. Uh, This election, you know, the sensational media headlines really, like, listen to the National Post, barely center-left versus barely center-right for all the marbles. That's a Chriselli column. In the Globe and Mail... No federal leader 
a clear winner on leading an ethical government, says Paul. And another headline, which leader do you dislike the least? John Ibbotson. What a thrilling time to participate in our democracy. I, I will say, I think the leader that I dislike the least is probably the leader of the Bloc Québécois because I have no idea who they are. <laughs> Whereas there's a lot of things that to dislike about the other leaders. <laughs> My predictable take on this is that the issues that politics are about matter. The problems that politics are trying to solve matter. Participating in our democracy is important. It's the media's job to engage the public. And it's the media's fault that they are making this the most boring fucking election ever. That would be what listeners would come to expect from me on this. But in this particular case, in this particular federal election, I don't think I can blame the media. I don't think you can blame the media. You're going to have to blame the actual parties and the leaders. They have boring fucking platforms. The conservative platform and the liberal platform, despite what both parties want you to think, really isn't that different from what the other party wants to do. They're both kind of in favor of deficit spending. It's just like a matter of when and where. Neither of them's really going to do anything on, on abortion, even though you know Trudeau's made some gains, say, on LGBT rights. He still hasn't cut out the blood ban. He hasn't equalized the age of consent laws. There's a lot of things that are, that are fairly similar across the board. Maybe foreign policy is like the one thing, but really like, I don't know, would would Stephen Harper, or Andrew Scheer have really dealt with Donald Trump that differently than Trudeau and Christian Freeland have? It's it's all kind of the same, especially because every every party in Canada is just a goddamn centrist party at this point. Whether you're the Greens, you know, they're just they're pretty much conservatives who like trees. Uh, the NDP is barely a left-wing party these days, especially when you compare it to the UK's uh, Labour or kind of the Democratic debates that are going on down in the States. So, you know, yeah, it's kind of fucking boring. I mean, I guess the parties have the ability to decide what the choice actually is. I mean, the issues can be super interesting. We're facing the greatest existential crisis. Like, what the fuck are we going to do about, about climate is a massive, massive question. But when you actually don't really have options that give you much... You know, like what hangs in the balance is if you go liberal or conservative, it's just like, why should I give a shit? It's like it's our job to tell people, here's why you should give a shit. I feel like we're doing our best with Oppo and Oppo's moved to weekly. And I'm like, wow, this is really interesting in the way that, that, that um, you know, Jen's on, on Matt leave, Justin and, and co-host are kind of going about it. It's like, OK, let's actually talk about, say, housing with the minister who has something to do with that and what works and what doesn't and hold them accountable. And it, it, you can kind of get into a thing where like, I'm not going to accept the small minute differences in your policy as like, that's where we're going to discuss. And we're not going to do a horse race thing where we assume that the public gives a shit about who's a little bit ahead or a little bit behind. Let's actually talk about the issues. So that's one way of going about it. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like ignoring the fight itself and talking about the issues. But, but, in, but you know, we do have to cover like the, the media writ large has to cover the fight and I don't know how we could do a better job of it. I actually don't know. Okay, here, here's where I'll amend some of my previous comments about, okay, it's all the leaders' faults and, and the parties. Like, one, small differences make a huge difference in people's lives. Like, that's that's just the truth, and journalists should be, like, honest about that, that every everything the government does has massive consequences for people. You know, you'll be hearing a lot from the liberals about the child benefit. 
that they gave out, you know, cash essentially to everybody who has kids, and that's helped lift a whole lot of people out of poverty. That's already something that most of us have kind of forgotten about, but that had a pretty goddamn tangible impact on people's lives. But the second thing that I'll say is, like, it kind of is the media's fault as well. The media in Canada doesn't do a very good job, I think, on on issues. Like, the media's pretty good on breaking stories, on doing some investigations, all of that kind of stuff, as we can see, say, with SNC-Lavalin. But when it comes to breaking new ground on policy and on really setting the agenda, I don't think you ever really see that coming from the media. The one exception I I would say is like say in Vancouver where it was it was the media driving the kind of money laundering housing conversation which had massive policy implications, yeah. right? Yeah. But you know, I I think back to things like Tanahasi Coates's cover piece in the Atlantic about uh the case for reparations, right? All of a sudden and ever since that piece, like a piece of journalism in a magazine, that's now become a political issue that say democratic candidates in the United States are now debating. It was put on the agenda by a journalist. Unfortunately, I just don't see that happening here too often. Yeah. Our kind of focus is very narrow. Well, I think that that's sort of the point. A lot of political journalists would feel very uncomfortable with the idea that we can actually set the terms of the debate and we could say to people like, no, this is what's important and what we're like, let's ask politicians about this, not what they want us to talk about. Because a lot, a lot of the time they like they have kind of a mutual interest in, you know, the liberals and conservatives both don't want us to have too, too thorough a conversation about carbon, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like, let's talk about something else. But... Uh, with that in mind, let us return to CBC's new podcast, Party Lines. I stepped in it last time when, yeah. when, when responding to the advanced marketing of the show, but now I've actually had a chance to listen to the show. And they succeeded in in achieving, I think, the conversational tone. Like, wh why do I need Rosie? Like, Rosie Burton's on, on talking about politics every night on The National. Put her on a podcast so I can actually hear a conversation and get Elamine in there because he's a really informed and interesting person who is always very natural in conversation. Uh, these are two strong people. So, you know, I, like, I, I was reserving judgment to hear the thing. And I think that they succeeded in creating a conversational space that feels natural. Yes. But they felt like it, it just immediately assumed that I give a shit about like the, the conversation was just framed of like, okay, let's go through each party and talk about what their chances are. And I, I bring it up like, you know, obviously I'm, I, I have a conflict of interest in this and in that I, we have a rival politics show uh, <laughs> out there. Yes. But, you know, the reason why I want to talk about it is that we get to the part where they get to Maxime Bernier. It's like this kind of removed academic conversation about can he win? Can he get support? Has this guy struck a nerve? And you've got Elamine there. And, uh, you know, he, he, he's uh, he's tapping into people's anger. He's got a very angry Twitter account. You know, Rosie says, you know, well, that's going to that's going to work for some people. It's going to turn some other people off. And, you know, because Rosie Barton is in the room, I suspect that they do not want to put her in the room with somebody who's going to say, well, this guy's a racist or this guy's trying to foment racism. But the reason why. I want to listen to Elamine on a podcast is because he has really informed and interesting opinions about things like the anti-immigrant sentiment that I'm asking Bernie. So it's it's very it was frustrating for me as a listener. Like, I don't want to talk about whether or not populist anti-immigrant racism can work or not divorced from a conversation about whether or not that should be part of our politics. Like, it's like this almost amorality because you can't have your marquee anchor star in a room where there are, like, hot takes and opinions. I, I mean, I think you're making a lot of assumptions about, like, what was actually happening in the dynamics there. But, like, first off... I'm very familiar with Elamine's Twitter feed and his oh, opinions, yeah, so it's yes. very odd to hear him yeah. just kind of, like, not weighing in. So uh, something was very weird and different. It was one episode, we have no idea, actually, like... And it was a kind of setting the tone one. But I, I just kind of want to shift this a little bit sure. away from from this one episode of one but podcast. But it's to what you're saying, which is, as journalists, shouldn't we be saying, well, this is what's I important. I actually think on things like Max 
Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada, that's kind of happened. I, I think journalists in Canada have started becoming a little bit more comfortable discussing just like out and out racism like you see with Maxime Bernier. You, I think you've seen like a decent amount of that. Maybe not on, I haven't, I don't watch much broadcast TV these days, so I don't really know what's happening there. But certainly on Twitter, certainly in columns, like I see that all the time. What are we going to do uh, throughout this campaign to make this actually fucking matter? Like I, I predict we're going to have the lowest voter turnout ever, you know? Like I don't know, like you know, like this, yeah. there's interesting things around the margins you've got like uh you know the, the the rhino party which i was just wondering do they still exist they're actually running a guy named maxime bernier god bless them which is brilliant in maxime bernier's riding like that oh mwah, delicious if, look if the rhinos run a candidate in my riding i will seriously consider voting for him but mostly you've got like the star i don't know what they're doing with this passion to lead thing where what's this passion to lead thing explain this to me basically the star is acting like it's like 1985 and the voters, it's like the assumption is like, OK, the voter is relying on us, the Toronto Star, to plug them into each candidate. You know, we're not going to take any editorial position. We're just going to let each of these uh, federal candidates just sort of like spout off their platform for like an hour. And the, the Oh, most... was this the, the with the they broadcast the editorial meetings that the leaders That's had right. With... They broadcast the editorial meetings and you've just got like, uh, you know, propaganda from each each party unchallenged, uncontested. I don't know. I don't know. What, what I found interesting, I watched the uh, Trudeau one and like. Most of the editorial board members asked the dumbest questions, but the reporters, the reporters were good, right? Toronto Star Labour reporter Sarah Moshe Hesde actually held the PM to account, asking him, like, will you institute a $15 minimum wage? And right. when he kind of, you know, waves it off, being like, well, it doesn't affect that many workers. It's like, well, you know what? There's a lot of workers at Pearson Airport that that does really affect. Yeah. And, I, like, that is the kind of interviewing that I do want to see. So I, I was Some impressed accountability by the... stuff happening there. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, you know, the, the coverage from the Star was lost enough that I saw the candidates like linking to it like hey do you want to check out my platform here's the Toronto Star because they'd yeah. rather link to that than their own campaign I, I hated the framing of it what what was it Andrew Shear Justin Trudeau comes in and talks about the middle class it's like oh if there's one framing we need to challenge with this middle class bullshit that everyone's going to be talking about all the time like guess what there's working class people and poor people in Canada as well and you know from what I recall we're still allowed to vote too you yeah know? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what the answer is. I mean, like you're living in this time of like such, such conflict, such huge existential questions, not just environment like we're like like shit is real right now. And it seems like the stakes of this election like just couldn't be more minor. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. Email me about it. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com, and I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand, and uh, Arshi has a podcast. Where can people find that? Oh, please go check it out on whatever your favorite podcast app is. It is Commons, C-O-M-M-O-N-S. We're hitting our first episode of the new season on Tuesday, and I promise you it will not be boring. Our weekly politics show, Oppo, which will be covering this uh, election from a non-boring perspective, uh, can be found at canadalandshow.com. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, if you appreciate um, having our podcasts in your life, if our news stories tell you things you didn't know beforehand, then I got to tell you the reason why we're able to do that is because people support us through Patreon. Please be one of them. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand.
country is run by a very small corporate elite and their hired guns. Let me say very clearly, I am incredibly proud to be Pierre Elliott Trudeau's son. And I'm incredibly lucky to have been raised with those values. We owe so much to Rob's legacy. A legacy started by my father, Doug Ford Sr., and a legacy that will continue. Canada is a country run by a small group of rich and powerful families. The Prime Minister is a Trudeau, the Premier of Ontario is a Ford, the Mayor of Toronto is a Tory, and even my city councillor is a Leighton. The Irvings and McCains run New Brunswick, Quebec is Demeray land, and Manitoba belongs to the Richardsons. When I buy a newspaper, the money goes to the Thompsons, and I get my groceries from the Westons. So on this season of Commons, we're going to tell you the incredible and incredibly weird stories of these families. Father suing daughters, fortune squandered, hell, even murder. When these dynasties fight, it shakes the whole country. Subscribe to Commons on your favorite podcast app, and the first episode drops this Tuesday.